Hello and welcome back to Why Morocco, a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to spotlighting some of the inspiring and creative personalities who share my love of the North African Kingdom of Morocco. My name's Mandy Sinclair, PR consultant and freelance writer, tasting Marrakesh food and cultural tours owner and host of this podcast. As you sit back and listen, it's my hope that you'll leave feeling inspired to pay a visit or motivated to start planning that trip to the Kingdom of Morocco. They say you can't judge a book by its cover, but on this week's episode, I sat down with the author behind the book, Tangier, From the Romans to the Rolling Stones by Richard Hamilton, and let me tell you, it was as good as the cover art. Richard worked as a North African correspondent for the BBC World Service and lived in Morocco for a year while covering the region. He had the opportunity to travel to Tangier for work and later returned to research the famous folks who've passed through this mythical mythical town that would eventually make up his latest book. I read this travel book while on a beach in Canada, knowing that my return to Morocco was imminent. But in my head, I was already planning a trip to Tangier upon my return, as Richard piqued my interest given the legendary places he notes throughout the book. You see, I've been to Tangier, twice actually, but each time I was only there for a day. And as Richard and I agree in the podcast interview, you cannot really do the city justice in such a short time. And particularly given the storied past and innovation that came out of the city during its heyday, which Richard reveals in Tangier from the Romans to the Rolling Stones. So let's listen in as Richard tells us about the process of writing the book and the stories he heard along the way. Um, I love your book. Yeah, I'm back in Morocco and I read the last chapter about the Rolling Stones yesterday. It's incredibly hot here and it just makes me want to go to Tangier. Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah. thank you so much. It's very mm-hmm. kind of you. Have, you. have you read the whole book then? Or? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but, no, it's a really good read. It um, Basically, I was on the beach in Canada for, like, weeks, and um, yeah. I would just go to the beach every day and sit down with the book for yeah. a few hours. Oh, great. So. Yeah, no, um, oh, it's really a wonderful out. book, yeah. and I love the cover art as well. It's really beautiful. Yeah, it's I'm very pleased with that. Mm-hmm. I found uh, her name's on the inside mm-hmm. cover, so I messaged her and said how much. Because uh, a lot of people have said they love the cover. Yeah. This is your second book with Morocco as the backdrop. And so can you yeah. tell listeners how you ended up in Morocco and what inspired you to write Tangier from the Romans to the Rolling Stones, your latest book? Sure. So I uh, work for the BBC, for the international part uh, it's called World Service Radio. Mm-hmm. And so back in 2006, I worked for the BBC as their correspondent in Morocco for a year. Mm-hmm. And I covered the whole of North Africa. So we did, I worked with a local Moroccan fixer because I don't speak Arabic. But uh, we covered Algeria, Tunisia, uh, Mauritania, um, so I covered the whole region, but 95% of the time I was in Morocco. And so uh, quite early on, I discovered, well, first of just a quick aside, I discovered the storytellers in Marrakesh. Mm-hmm. So that was my first book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the second book, Tangier, I mean, although it's more recent, uh, when I was out in Morocco in 2006, I traveled up there to do some features about Tangier. Um, because it, at the time, so, uh, this was, you know, 14, 13 years ago, at the time Tangier was applying to hold this World world Expo, which is like an international cultural ex- ex- exhibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like you have, uh, you know, Liverpool International City of Culture or mm-hmm. whatever. So at the time, Tangier was competing with, say, five or six other cities around the world to hold this expo. So um, I did a feature on that, and sadly the city didn't win the competition, but I was aware that there was a lot of investment in Tangier to try and turn it around. And I was aware of its history, but I didn't know, you know that much, because it was the first time I'd been to Tangier. Mm-hmm. But I just got more and more interested in its history and its culture, and, uh, and also I sensed that it had sort of, the, the city had turned the corner because... Um, some people may know that under the previous king of Morocco, King Hassan II, um, Tangier was neglected and it sort of fell into 
decay and disrepair and uh, there was no investment in it because uh, there'd been a rebellion in the north of Morocco against King Hassan. And also I think some of the people that tried to oust him in a coup, I think they came from the north. Uh, so King Hassan was very sort of angry and vowed never to go to Tangier and he sort of starved the north of Morocco of any investment and it became very marginalized and so the city just sort of faded away and you know there was no uh, you could literally see the paint peeling off the walls so I was aware that it had this golden age of yeah. uh, international zone you know in the 1950s and, and then and that was sort of the golden era uh, culturally and artistically and that's when all these people from different parts of the world came to Tangier. Mm-hmm. And then I was aware that it just sort of had faded away. So, you know, so it's, it's an interesting uh, curve in terms of its narrative. So I think it's an interesting time now. So uh, I probably talked for too much for one answer, but that's, I basically <laughs> discovered it and wanted to find out more. And then I kept coming back to Morocco, even after I finished being a correspondent there. Well, let's go all the way back because the first chapter in Tangier from the Romans to the Rolling Stones, uh, you talk about the Romans and the Greeks who both hold different theories on how the city came about. Can you tell us briefly about the theories and if you believe one more than the other? Um, right. I mean, it's there's a, Tangier, and I, and I think this is what I love about Tangier, mm-hmm. is it's a sort of city of uh, history, but it's also a city of myths and mm-hmm. mythology, and so it's very difficult to nail anything down in Tangier. But I sort of like that. Yeah. So even even uh, nowadays, you know, uh, you, they're sort of urban myths, and people will tell you these wonderful stories, and then you say, "Is that true?" And they go, "Oh, I don't know, but it's very Tangier, and I didn't. <laughs> I, the story's almost so good to be true that I didn't want to." check it. So um, there's that sort of sense that, uh, you know, I think there's a quote on the book, uh, on the back cover from uh, Mm -hmm. Mohamed Shukri, who was a a tangerine and a famous writer and storyteller. So the quote is, everything is surreal and everything is possible in Tangier. And so if you go way back to the early origins, you know, as you say, there are several Mm -hmm. different theories as to what uh, how Tangier came about. And so one, one lovely story is that when Noah was uh, on his ark, uh, you know, fleeing the flood, and the ark was full of animals, and uh, the ark sailed off, that there's one theory that it landed on the hill in Tangier, which is still there, which is known as the Shah. And that in, I think, I'm, I'm not a historian, you know, by trade, but I think either in Berber or Arabic, um, Noah, when he saw this uh, hill pointing out of the sea, because there was still a flood, he said, Tinja, which I think in Berber or or early Arabic means the land is here. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the theories as to, you know, where the, uh, the name of Tangier came about. Um, but then, as you say, there are lots of other theories, and it almost doesn't matter, you know, which is true, because we don't know very much about the prehistory of Tangier, and we really, we only really know, you know, archaeologically, it, it goes back to the Phoenicians and the Romans, but um, the Moroccans are very proud of their, and rightly so, of their Islamic heritage, mm-hmm. and so they haven't, they haven't done a lot to uncover the archaeology from pre-Islamic times. So there are a, a couple of Roman ruins, and you know, but they're very tiny. And then there's some Roman artifacts in the museum in the Casbah. Mm-hmm. But we don't we don't know much about Tangier's prehistory. So it's probably why in my book those early chapters are, are shorter because mm-hmm. we don't really know, you know, exactly what went on. And there's a lot of myths, as I say. So just a very brief one. Um, the story is that Hercules yeah. uh, rested, um, I think it was before his 11, 11th labor, or it might have been after his 11, 11th labor, but there were 12 labors that, he, that Hercules was set to do. And one of them was to rescue or to retrieve the garden 
that sorry, the apples from the Garden of the Hesperides, mm-hmm. which again is a sort of mythical place, and people just like the lost island of Atlantis. People don't know where the Garden of Hesperides was, but uh, the myth is that Hercules rested after this labour uh, and in a cave, which is still there. So you've got the Grot de mm-hmm. Hercules of mm-hmm. Tangier, and that, so that's where I started the book. Yeah. Uh, you know, because chronologically, that's the earliest sort of reference to Tangier. So uh, part of the story of, of Tangier was that Hercules uh, fell in love uh, with a woman, and she I think she was called Tingis. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, tr- I'm just sorry, I'm not, I'm, I'm, it's a while since I've checked back at all the facts and stuff, mm-hmm. so it may be that the daughter was called Tingis or... Yeah. But anyway, the, the origin of the name Tangier came back, it goes back to those very early uh, mythological stories about Hercules. Uh, and then Hercules told the giant Atlas uh, if he could hold up the heavens while Hercules uh, looked for the apples. And, you know, the story is that Hercules separated the continents of Africa and Europe which are the pillars of Hercules. Mm-hmm. So on one side, you've got Gibraltar, and on the other side, you've got Jebel Musa. So they're the two sort of stone col- uh, columns which uh, Hercules split aside. But the stories are all sort of intertwined, and it's difficult. You know, we, that we, it's like King Arthur or whatever, yeah. or whatever the mm-hmm. early, early pre-historical narratives, and they sort of intertwine, and it's, it probably doesn't pay to be too, uh, you know, pedantic or, yeah. uh, you know, scrutinise it too much because uh, Tangier, I think, is a city of, of mythology, really, and mm-hmm. stories and how it was founded and the different theories. I, I can't say, oh, I believe, you know, the Greek version more than the Roman yeah. version because there's so many different sort of interpretations. And I think it would be almost a shame if we found the answer. You know, I think it's nice that <laughs> there's mystery mystery there. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the famous uh, tangerines that you featured in your book was Im Batuta. Um, That's right. He seemed quite interesting, quite a storied travels that he went on to. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit about who he was and why do you think he's not so well known in Moroccan history books? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I mean, if he was, um, had done what he did and had perhaps come from France or England or, or whatever, you know, he would be like one of the most celebrated uh, explorers of all time. I mean, he lived around the time of Marco Polo mm-hmm. uh, in the medieval times, and yet he covered, and people, and Marco Polo is very well known, you know, that he traveled to China and uh, brought, uh, I think, pasta or spaghetti to Italy and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, Marco Polo gets a lot of credit uh, historically. And as you say, Ibn Battuta, a lot of people have never heard of him. And it's, and he's extraordinarily sort of unrecognized. Mm-hmm. But I suppose that makes him a good, a worthy character for a book. because, mm-hmm. And I can talk about this later in our conversation, but there are other characters that people don't know about who uh, actually had wonderfully uh, imaginative, creative lives, and uh, they didn't get the credit that they deserve. So mm-hmm. Ibn Battuta, I mean, the airport at Tangier is named after Ibn Battuta, mm-hmm. and uh, there, is a, there was a hotel, a rather seedy hotel down there by the port mm-hmm. called Ibn Battuta, and that's got knocked down. And then the ferry to Spain was named after Ibn Battuta. So it's, it would be wrong to say that he's not heard of at all in Tangier. But um, for some reason, and one of the uh, uh, Moroccan authors that I interviewed about Ibn Battuta, he's called Lokshi Akale, and he was very frustrated, and he translated um, the travels of Ibn Battuta. So he traveled three times further than Marco Polo in the medieval era, and he got as far as Siberia and China and India and as far south as uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, or certainly about as far as Mali, mm-hmm. um, and then I got a north of, uh, in terms of Europe, he got into Spain. 
and he travelled most of his, you know, he spent most of his life travelling. So although he was born in Tangier, and he ended his life in Tangier, uh, he spent nearly, I think, again, I haven't got the facts and figures in front of me now, but he spent approximately three decades travelling around the world, mainly going on holy pilgrimages. And he went to Mecca several times, and his sort of, mission was to explore the far reaches of the Islamic world. And so he had an amazing life, as you say, and he, uh, his travels were all written down. When he came back to Tangier, he, uh, co he collaborated with a, a scribe who wrote them all down. And so they're wonderful descriptions of people and places and cultures and different ways of life. So it's a sort of anthropological record of the world, a snapshot of the world in that, uh, I think it's the 12th century. I, again, I'm not quite sure of the mm -hmm. exact dates that he, he lived, but it was around the time of Marco Polo. And, um, you know, so he had, had an amazing uh, career. And some of it's quite salacious. I don't know if you remember, but he sort of remarks on, you yeah. know, women walking around <laughs> naked in the Maldives, and, and he seemed to collect a lot of lovers. So yeah. Although he was a scholar and a very saintly man, he also seems to think nothing of, of having about six wives and mm -hmm. several lovers and slave girls and moving from one woman to the next and, you know, getting some of them pregnant and just clearing off to the next site. So, um, mm -hmm. Not, maybe not the ideal role model, but again, I think Tangier uh, <laughs> attracts unusual characters, and some of them may not have morals that we approve of with by today's yeah. you know, standards. But uh, it, maybe it's not for us to judge them by, you know, the modern perspective. But uh, so I don't. Uh, so so Lotfi Atale was saying that he was very frustrated. He translated Ibn Battuta's travels, which were written down by the scribe, mm -hmm. uh, into Moroccan Arabic and uh, broadcast series, uh, you know, like um, episodes of the travels on, on Tangier radio. Mm -hmm. uh, but when he would go and present a talk about Ibn Battuta, you know, in France or Holland or, or Morocco, he found that the Europeans and non-Moroccans were very interested, but a lot of Moroccans, you know, they didn't turn up to his talks and presentations, mm -hmm. and they didn't buy his book, and they, and he just sort of was very uh, infuriated and frustrated with the lack of sort of cultural interest in Ibn Battuta. But I don't really know why that is. I just think mm -hmm. that maybe, you know, Mor Moroccans have got more pressing concerns mm -hmm. than yeah. uh, celebrating the life of, but. You know, as I say, the, the fact that the airport is named after him, and, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure with anniversaries there will be revivals, and maybe maybe my book as well will help bring the uh, you know the knowledge uh, and the awareness and the appreciation of, of this traveller. You know, but it may it may re reignite some interest in him. But he, I think it's obviously more interesting in a way to write about people that are not mm -hmm. immediately obvious. Exactly. You know, because. The, then people will discover things. Yeah, I mean, I only know about him from living in Morocco. I hear the name come up. You know, there's in Batuta yeah. Street and the airport, right. as you said. And so to actually have a whole chapter whereby I felt like, you know, I yeah. actually learned about who he was. Yeah, there's also a tomb of Ibn Batuta in Tangier, uh, but, which is very difficult to find. And you have to weave your way through the Medina and eventually, if you're lucky, there's a, a tiny little alleyway called Rue Ibn Battuta. And then there's an old uh, tomb, and it was locked when I got there. But mm -hmm. the uh, Moroccan writer who I worked with and collaborated with on the book, he had filmed inside the tomb. So he showed me footage of that. But the modern archaeologists suspect that Ibn Battuta was actually buried somewhere else, probably underneath Casablanca. Um, oh, wow. So he may he may not his body may not actually be in the in the sarcophagus in the tomb in Tangier. But again, I I, I like the sense of mystery. It's yeah. like the Loch Ness monster or whatever. You know where mm -hmm. where does where is Ibn Battuta laid to rest? We don't really know, and that's uh, 
you know, I like the element of enigma. Uh-huh. So switching over to more like the political, Sam Pepes, um, in the chapter that you wrote about him, you note that St. Francis of Assisi labeled Tangier the city of madness and delusion. How would you describe the town? Right. <laughs> um, well, I think in the, uh, in the international zone era, so I think although the book is chronological and I try to cover um, as many different eras of Tangier, I think the halfway point, and it's not immediate, you know, if, if you took the halfway point from the Romans to the Rolling Stones, it would be like 1500s or something, but it's, that's not the halfway point in the book. The halfway point in the book is the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And that is where that is where the beat writers and the American homosexual writers uh, discovered Tangier. So that all started with Paul Bowles. Mm-hmm. So in a way, St. Francis of Assisi was saying it was a city of madness and delusion. And in a way, that was um, prescient because a lot of these American experimental writers and artists that came in the 1950s, uh, you know, they took drugs, they hallucinated. And so in a, the liter- literally, Tangier, for them, became a city of madness and delusion. Mm-hmm. But St. Francis of Assisi was probably talking about a lack of Christian morals and things. And Samuel Pepys, uh, who was there in 1684, I think, uh, for the British. Mm-hmm. He also was very scathing about Tangier yeah. and thought that it was a very immoral and debauched place. Mm-hmm. And his diaries talk about the um, uh, lack of, uh, you know, the drunkenness and mm-hmm. the sexual immorality and the whoring. And mm-hmm. so again, I don't know what it is about ports, seaports, but there may be they may always have been naturally... I mean, I'm sort of interested by places that are on the margins. Mm-hmm. You know, they're sort of liminal places. They're, they're on the borders. Yeah. They're on the... the so, in, in a way, they're on the edges of morality and they're on the borders of, of social norms. Mm-hmm. But again, Tangier was attractive to homosexuals and it was partly because, of, because it was an international city... It wasn't directly ruled by Morocco, and it wasn't directly ruled by anyone. So anything went in the 1950s. Uh, you know, it was, it was part of an international zone ruled by several, administered by several different European powers. So uh, a lot of people could slip through the net. So people escaping uh, dodgy things that they'd done in England or the U.S., uh, you know, or at the time, homosexuality was illegal in the 1950s in America and Britain. Mm-hmm. So it made sense that people could go to Tangier to escape. And so I think, in a sense, it's a place of madness and delusions because you can delude yourself into believing you're anything you want to be. And I think other, other historians have noted this. And even people living there now have sort of acknowledge that Tangier is a place where you can go to reinvent yourself. And I think we'll come back to this uh, theme that the, the accuracy and the historical fact almost didn't matter. You know, people enjoyed the mythology. So, you know, if someone turned up and said, I'm the fifth Earl of Dumfries mm-hmm. at a party, uh, you know, people would love that and they wouldn't, they wouldn't question it because that's more interesting than being a hairdryer, a hairdresser from Essex, you know. So uh, it's, that, it's that sort of lack of... I suppose it's what we're talking, we're talking now, fake news, where mm-hmm. we're talking the sort of beyond truth, the post-truth world that we talk about with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. It was sort of happening in Tangier in the 50s that people were living slightly illusory lives and deluding themselves and deluding other people, but nobody really cared. Mm-hmm. Like, so there was a great, a great quote that I got from an American writer called Paula Wolfert, and she said the telephone book was full of people claiming to be duchesses and dukes and earls <laughs> and, you know, lords. Uh-huh. But uh, the te- it didn't matter because the telephone didn't work anyway. You know? so that, <laughs> that sort of summarized Tangier, that people sort of deluded themselves. Mm-hmm. 
And then in more, li- in more literal ways, people like William Burroughs and Timothy Leary experimented with acid and magic mushrooms and LSD mm-hmm. and stuff. So they literally made, made themselves mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think what I like about Tangier is it's sort of on the edge of sanity almost. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's too strong because it, you, it's, not like, you, it's not like you walk down the street and you, you go mad. It's just that it was a place where people experimented with their own state of consciousness, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was also a, like where the creative class, um, you know, was a real hub and they also experimented and came up with kind of some innovative new techniques in the art world. So for example, like Brian Jones, you noted was recording the local, um, Jujuka musicians and the sounds of Jim yeah. with the intentions of overdubbing them with the soul music. Brian uh, Jisson was, uh, had his cut up technique. Is this level yeah. of innovation, innovation still happening based on what you saw while researching? Um, I, I probably not to that extent, but you're absolutely right. For some reason, Tangier at a certain time in a certain place, sparked this, uh, you know, I mean, my first book about Marrakesh, I talk about it being a cultural crossroads, Mm -hmm. uh, because in Marrakesh, you know, people come up from the desert, and then they went on across the Sahara, and people met and swapped stories in Marrakesh. And I think the same thing sort of happened in Tangier, culturally. People came across from Europe, they came across from America, there were local Moroccans telling stories, and those stories fed the imaginations of these American writers like Paul Bowles and William Burroughs, and uh, so Brian Geisen was inspired by the, as you say, the, uh, the musicians, and, and he invented this cut-up technique, which is for, for listeners that you know aren't aware of it. It's a way of it's cutting up words, jumbling them around. Mm-hmm and reconstructing them so that you get bizarre sentences. So it's sort of experimenting with linear narrative, jumbling it all up to create something new. And I think this is what was happening in Tangier. It was a very experimental time. You know, I talked about people experimenting with drugs. So William Burroughs was obviously writing, you know, books like Naked Lunch under the influence of of drugs. Uh, So their creative impulses you know, went that way. But there was also, it was just an incredible time. And I think there are certain times in history when, you know, all the stars are in alignment and different people happen to meet mm-hmm. in one place at a certain time in history when the conditions are right, you know, they're fertile for this explosion of creativity. And, you know, it's very difficult to put your finger on why that happened and why it you know, to a certain extent, faded out because it's not—it's not the cultural hub that it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think again, that's sort of that's a big question mark. Uh, what what causes somewhere at some time in history to to be this explosive area of where you see an outpouring of of writing and, and music and art, you know, all coming together at a certain time? And if you look back in history. I'm sure you could make, you know, other claims for Paris in the 1930s or Berlin, you know, uh, or New York, in fact. I've I've had an idea about writing about New York in the 1980s, uh, although I'm not an expert on American culture. But for some reason, you know, with punk and disco and the HIV AIDS epidemic and hedonism, you know, for some reason in, in New York in about 1979, there was an explosion of culture. Mm-hmm. And the same in Vienna in about 1913, people have written about Sigmund Freud and uh, Egon Schiller and people like that. So for some reason, there are just parts of the world, and I'm sure in ancient history it was true of, you know, Alexandria and Egypt and uh, Athens you know, where you just basically, you get a place that attracts uh, intellectuals and people that are a bit different and they see the world differently and they all get together and they sort of bounce ideas off each other and they spark each other's imaginations. So what you were saying about Brian Geisen and the cut-up technique, by collaborating with William Burroughs, who was quite frankly 
like one of the weirdest people you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. And even Brian Guyton was pretty weird. Mm-hmm. But the two of them bounced off each other, so they collaborated together, and they ended up in a, a bizarre rundown hotel in Paris called the Beach Hotel. Mm-hmm. And they discovered this cut-up technique by accident because Brian Guyton was chopping up newspapers with a Stanley knife to, to make a frame for a picture. And he cut up lots of newspaper that was underneath the picture frame, and it was all on the floor. And then when he went to pick it up, the the words were in a jumble. And he came up with these sort of extraordinary sentences. Like I think one of my favorites is, Swiss boys are very fond of uh, outboard spiritual motors or something like that, which is totally bizarre. And you'd have to be hallucinating to come up with something like that. But it, that, that sort of unlocked a, a new way of, of writing. And... Musicians such as David Bowie and uh, Michael Stipe and Bono and Lou Reed have all credited uh, William Burroughs and Brian Geisen, and less, to a lesser extent Brian Geisen, because like the other producer, he was the, the forgotten man, mm-hmm. whereas William Burroughs is fairly well known. Uh, but anyway, they, all these musicians have credited those two with being a huge in, influence on their music. So... Um, I've almost forgotten what you were asking, but it, yeah, it's it's just one of these incredibly creative places, mm-hmm. and it still attracts artists and would-be writers now. And you know, I think it is a creative place, and I've seen a bit of a revival. You know, there's the mm-hmm. Cinema Reef. I don't know if you've been yeah. there. Mm-hmm. It's, so it's been restored. You know, beautiful 1930s cinema has been restored into a art house cinema with cultural events. <laughs> So there are definitely, and that goes back to what I was saying about the revival of Tangier, the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. There is investment. That there are writers and artists and creative types who want to bring back Tangier. And, you know, so uh, there's definitely a, an upward turn in its fortunes. But I still think the heyday was probably the 1950s, and that sort of fascinates me the most. So if that's the central point of the book sort of there's before the 1950s and there's after Um, but as you say Brian is an extraordinary character who was years ahead of his time Mm -hmm. before you know before people like Peter Gabriel uh, experimented with world music you know and combining uh, African musicians with rock and stuff like that which is nowadays pretty well known world music Mm -hmm. but in the 1960s that was unheard of you know Mm because nobody Nobody knew of what Moroccan... Nobody in the West knew anything about Moroccan music. Yeah. Brian Jones was coming you know, coming from another planet. You know, he found these musicians that Brian Geithen introduced him to and said, you know, this is music from another world. You know, we've got to incorporate this. But again, Brian, Brian Jones was on the edge of his own sanity because he'd abused uh, drugs and he had depression and paranoia. And, you know, so again... The, the creativity goes hand in hand with a slightly, you know, unbalanced mental state. <laughs> so um, I, I think, as I say, there is a there is a, a move for artists and writers to come back to Tangier, and there are local talented artists and writers. And they always say, just you know, one final point that the light in Tangier is particularly. Uh, clear because you've got the light from the Mediterranean and the Atlantic and the the light bounces off each other from these two seas and I mean the light in Morocco is fabulous anyway as you know exactly. and you know in Marrakesh you've got the, the garden Yves Saint Laurent and you know all the, the wonderful colors and you know that attracted uh, painters and so I think there's still a, a modern wave of painters who find Tangier the perfect place to absorb all those colors and and let the imagination sort of unravel. You know, it's just a very inspiring place. I I hope that the book helps to reveal some of that because I think if you just first turn up at Tangier, you know, if you get off the ferry or whatever, Mm -hmm. or you're coming from the train and you... this, This happened to me the very first time I got the train and then I got a taxi to the ferry and it was raining and, and I went through the modern part of Tangier and I thought, what's, what's all the fuss about? You know, this yeah. is a fairly, a fairly bland looking place. But I, what I hope the book does is sort of unlock these mysteries and give people a greater appreciation 
Yeah, and it is a beautiful place, but you wouldn't necessarily initially think that because you just see some tower blocks and you think, yeah. oh, this looks like a hundred other Moroccan towns that you know were sort of built up in you know in the seventies, mm-hmm. and this isn't, isn't anything special. But I hope I hope the book is a sort of homage, a homage to to its past, but it also its potential as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, just a quick time out, because if you're keen to explore Tangier and places equally as mythical while traveling around Morocco, let me tell you about SunTrails, a private tour operator based in Marrakesh. I've had the pleasure of being both a paying customer on a holiday through the south of Morocco, but also traveling with Chris, the owner, as he is a friend after all. But that aside, Chris is genuinely passionate about discovering the hidden gems dotting the country and meeting people like architects and musicians undertaking interesting initiatives. He then puts it all together in an itinerary for guests who are looking for more than just the standard tour of Morocco. He's been on the podcast twice, so if you want to find out more, check out episode 1 and episode 19, or get in touch with me via mandyandmorocco.com and I'll happily put you in touch. Because... Reading about the legendary places that you visited, so L'Escalier Wale, the Café Baba, Café de France, Almenza, I mean, this just has me longing to return to Tangier because I've been to Tangier twice, but there's, I don't, I just didn't get under the skin of Tangier because, I mean, throughout the, the book, I felt you had the same experience of like, you're always knocking on doors and you're always trying to discover and find, you know, things even like the um, Ibn Patuta, uh resting yeah. place, laid out place where you just kind of wander and find everything right in front of you easily. Exactly, yeah. And I think you, you put your finger on it. It's, it's a place that it, it requires a, a little bit of exploration and investment of your time, and it will stretch your patience mm-hmm. and that you will arrange to meet someone at, 10 a.m. in a cafe and they'll turn up at midday if you're lucky, you know, uh-huh. and just, you know, you know, probably more than I do, that uh-huh. Morocco is not, it's not the easiest place in the world. And sometimes you go in search of a story and you don't get it. Uh-huh. And, but you find something else, which in the end turns out to be more remarkable. So, you know, I had the same experience with Marrakesh with the first book. Uh-huh. That it drove me, it drove me mad. You know, uh, <laughs> the frustrations of trying to set up interviews and get people to find me a storyteller, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the same with Tangier. You know, it's not, it's not an obviously easy place. But I, I was lucky in that I, I had a guide through the sort of labyrinth, and that. So that I talk about him a lot in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's called Otman Ben Shakroon, and he's a Moroccan writer that's lived all his life in Tangier. And he's passionate about preserving the archaeological and architectural heritage of Tangier. So he would sort of help me unlock its secrets. But he came up with a lovely phrase. He said that, and I think he was telling, he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Arabic, so we spoke in French to each other. But he, it was something like, Tangier is a woman who does not give herself easily to you. Mm-hmm. And that's a lovely phrase. So in a sort of production level, you know, Tangier is a hard nut to crack. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, as you say, it doesn't lay itself out easily mm-hmm. at first glance. So there may be places in the world that, you know, you go to the pyramids and suddenly you're awestruck by Egypt. Yeah. And you go to the Taj Mahal in India and you're suddenly you go, wow, this is what I came here for. And yet Tangier doesn't obviously, it's probably the same with Marrakesh, there isn't one monument that people go to see in Tangier that explains Tangier. So I think what I tried to do in the book and what I think I hope makes it different is that it's, it's not just a history book. The title says, from the Romans mm-hmm. to the Romans, but it's really a travel book within yeah. a city. And I travel around, you know, and I explore the hotels and the uh, cafes, like you say, yeah. the Faveur de Croissant, the Escalier Wallier, and the Café Barba and the Café de Paris and these places. And again, like I took some friends very recently. I just went back for a holiday to Tangier and I, I went to see the musicians of Chijuca and I spent a few days with these two friends showing them these places. And we went to the Grand Café de Paris and mm-hmm. I said to this guy, look at this place. And he went, 
And I said, this is amazing. And he said, no, it's not. It's just this boring cafe. <laughs> you know, what, what the hell did you bring me here for? And I said, no, you don't understand. This is where all these writers yeah. used to sit and have their coffee, you know. So the, the list is endless, you know. There's Paul Bowles, William Burroughs, Samuel Beckett, Jean Genet. Um, it just goes on. Tennessee Williams, Truman Capote. It's, you, it's, all, it's almost unbelievable that a place as small as Tangier and cafes as small mm -hmm. and as seemingly unprepossessing as the Café de Paris would have this remarkable literary history. You know, so yeah. what, what I hope that the book does is it acts as a sort of uh, a guide through, mm -hmm. through Tangier and helps people understand. Because if you just got off the ferry and you had a day to kill in Tangier and you wandered about, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure you'd have a nice time, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't necessarily appreciate what went on behind its walls. And mm -hmm. as you say, that it takes a little while to unlock those secrets. And my, a lot of my each chapter begins with me trying to get in mm -hmm. somewhere. Exactly. And a lot of the time, a lot of the time, I couldn't get in because mm -hmm. you know the room where William Burroughs wrote Naked Lunch in the Maneria Hotel. Well, for a start, I, I found it incredibly difficult to find a hotel, and probably because I've got a terrible sense of direction. And then when I when I got there, they would they told me that the key to the room was locked. Mm -hmm. Sorry, the, the room was locked, and the key had disappeared off with some mythological uncle who'd gone to <laughs> Algeria or something, you know. And it was just one of those tangier stories. But it's and the same with Samuel Pepys. I sort of spent a whole morning with Othman, my Moroccan friend. Yeah. Trying to get into this house where called Dar Zero, where Samuel Pepys is supposed to have written some of his diaries, and you know, I spent most of the day sort of banging on the door and, and metaphorically banging my head against a brick wall, thinking, <laughs> "I'm never going to get in here," you know. And then eventually, just when you'd almost given up, this old man opened the door, and you know, then the secrets began to come out. You can't just expect to get an answer straight away. And I think that's, in a, in a way, quite a good lesson for all of us in the West, that run run by clocks or whatever. And another uh, local tangerine, tangerine proverb, which one of the guys I met who who ran the bazaar, but the shop beneath the Hotel Continental, Intercontinental, uh, he said, you and Europe have the watches, but we have the time. Yes. And I just thought that was a lovely, a lovely proverb, you know, and that sums up Morocco. So you have to, with any part of Morocco, you have to sort of de decompress and slow down. And it won't, it is like the woman that won't give herself easily to you. You can't just rock up and do Tangier in a day, you know. You know you get even these tours of Europe where they do Rome in a day and then the next day they do Paris and, yeah. and I'm, I'm probably being unfair but you know there are these tour groups they come, they come to London then they go to Oxford and then they fly to Paris and they do Europe in a week you know and if they if they did Tangier in a day they'd be doing a massive disservice mm -hmm. because it's just somewhere as you say that, that takes a while to un, unpeel its layers and it's a complicated place and I don't claim to be the expert that has discovered the truth or what, whatever the truth is of Tangier, you know, and it, it will remain a, an interwoven, complex enigma, you know, wrapped in a mystery or whatever the expression is. Well, it's also um, about the people that you meet because the characters that you meet. So if I'm understood correctly, um, the author, Mohammed Imrabit, is the only living person you dedicated a chapter to. Is that correct? Yes, I think that's right. Yes, everyone else has passed away. So, uh, and even Mohammed Mrabat is very old, so he's in his eighties. But he just seems like such a character. Yes. So there are. I mean, I mean, I think Tangier is just one of these places that it not only was you know was it a place for cultural, creative, mm -hmm. uh, you know, experimentation. It's also a place where you get extraordinary eccentric characters, and Mohammed Rabat is like that. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I don't know how much you want me to talk about him, but in a, in a nutshell, he was a, a poor boy that lived in Tangier that uh, befriended rich Americans and was lucky enough to stumble across Paul Bowles and his wife Jane. And in, again, in the 50s, made money out of telling stories and he made money out of 
he did all sorts of jobs and then he'd get into fights or he'd steal mm-hmm. something and then he'd get... So his life was like, he was always on the run, you know, and he spent, in the early part of the chapter on him, he, he spent several months living in a cave, which is extraordinary, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. uh, because he got into trouble and he beat somebody up or something, I mean, he, or he made a pass at some young boy and his, the father of the boy was from the police and he he went and hid in a cave for a couple of months. And, you know, there's, so there's not many people who do things like that. <laughs> exactly. So uh, his life was extraordinary. But because he was a natural storyteller, he used to sit in these cafes, like the Café Hassa, mm-hmm. and, and hear stories. And again, there's an overlap with the first book about the Marrakesh storytellers. At the time, you know, before television, uh, in the, you know, from the 50s and earlier, uh, that was the way people entertained themselves in cafes in Morocco and in the squares and in mm-hmm. public spaces and in homes as well. You know, grandmothers would tell stories. So Mohamed Mrabet learned stories just by osmosis. He couldn't read or write. He got kicked out of school at a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was a very troubled character and very violent and very sort of grasping. Uh, but he was inspired by these storytellers. So he he would recount these stories and then he would make them up. He would add bits of fiction to them and he would make them his own. And so just by chance, you know, Paul Bowles met Mohammed Marbet and was enchanted by his stories and collaborated with Marbet and the, the stories got to be published. Mm-hmm. And so the, world, the wider world got to read some of these extraordinary fantasies about mermaids and monsters and starfish that could talk and, you know, <laughs> and, and Mohamed Mahabet's uh, literary world, I mean, he's not a writer in a traditional sense, he's a storyteller, but his whole world is informed by the sea. So his, his stories are very much interwoven with being, the Tangier being a port and, you know, he, he used to fish and catch fish and, you know, so he actually said, you know, we, we said to him, what, where do your stories come from? And he says, they come from the sea and the fish tell me the stories, you know. <laughs> so obviously this is, this is not a normal person, but again, this is what Tangier is. It's where facts and fiction interweave and it's not, it doesn't pay to be too literal, you know, because if you sort of said, well, surely the fish can't tell you the stories, you know, that he would, he would look at you as if you're mad because he smoked a lot of cannabis. Mm-hmm. And that that also affected his writing and his art. And he's a painter. Yeah. And some of his works can be seen in the Minza Hotel. And I bought one of his pictures. And you know, so uh, it's difficult going back to you know eccentric people. I mean, mm-hmm. I met a lot of the expatriate crowd who you know hang out and have dinner parties, and they are you know very very unusual and you know, creative, eccentric types. Mm-hmm. And I feel in a way that they're the last generation, they're the last breed of a certain type of people. And so I, what, part of what, why I wanted to write the book was because I wanted to capture their stories and their mm-hmm. reminiscences and their... So you're right, most of these people are dead that I write about. Mm-hmm. And then most of the people that I interviewed are, are elderly, you know, they're in the 70s or 80s or older, like the, the guy that lived in Samuel Pepys' house mm-hmm. in his 90s. So a lot of these people, they're not going to be around for very long. So I felt if I wanted to capture these memories of Tangier in the 50s or 60s, but, you know, the heyday, yeah. the golden era, that I had to get hold of the generation that still remembered, you know, growing up in that era. Uh-huh. And, you know, if I didn't collect their memories, then they would disappear. And so the same, it was the same urgency with the Marrakesh storytellers. You know, the storytellers mm-hmm. in Marrakesh are dying out. And I wanted to capture those stories before they were lost. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that in, in a similar way, although the Tangier book is a more factual book and more historical and mm-hmm. more cultural and more broader, but there's a similar sort of uh, theme running through it that I wanted to, I wanted to try and uh, you know, to write down these, these uh, wonderful anecdotes mm-hmm. and memories and get a flavor of what Tangier was like. Right, yeah. 
before, you know, because however much a new generation comes in and stamps its mark on a city, mm-hmm. and I welcome that. Mm-hmm. I welcome, you know, people complain that there's too much modern buildings in Tangier, you know, like mm-hmm. there's a spank, brand spanking new train station and a, a TGV and a, a Hilton and a, mm-hmm. you know, they're even thinking of a cable car and a, yeah. Anyway, I mean, I, 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 most of that I think is a good thing, and we can't, you can't stop change. Mm-hmm. But I'm aware that the sort of the mysteries of the Medina and the, the stories of people like Mohammed Mrabet, you know, and the memories of all these people and the extraordinary things they did, you know, the Barbara Hutton's parties in the Casbah and yeah. getting uh, getting the alleyways widened so her Rolls Royce could get into her house and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, that's all going to be lost if we don't write these stories down. And so I'm wondering if then, um, if you were able to speak to anybody who was working at, say, the Almenza Hotel, where a lot of the celebrities stayed, um, including the Rolling Stones, or even the Café de Paris um, during the heyday. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, I mean, the, again, the problem is that some of the people, so some of the waiters or whatever are not old enough to remember, mm-hmm. you know, so I, when I went in the Minza, I, people did talk about the era of when they were spies and, you know, during the, and after the Second World War, people told me about the intrigue and the different nationalities all sort of eyeing each other mm-hmm. suspiciously over cocktails and stuff. So I, from people living in Tangier still and from the occasional people living and working in these hotels, I did get a glimpse of that. But the problem is that a lot of a lot of the people are not old enough to remember the people that I'm writing about. So yeah. it's difficult, you know, although I'm saying I'm trying to capture it before it's gone, in a way I was a little bit too late, in, even in some cases, because... Um, when I went to the, where the master musicians of Jujuka play in their home village of Jujuka, uh, a few of them, uh, so they're, they're elderly men, a few of them vaguely remember Brian Jones, but they would have been about eight years old then, you know. Mm-hmm. So they would have been very, very young, and they just sort of said, yeah, there was this guy called Brian Jones, and, you know, he came from England, and, you know, I was eight years old, and mm-hmm. he had blonde hair, you know, so yeah. that's nice but that's not terribly Mm -hmm. revealing so a lot of my research was also quite frankly done from books you know so there are biographies of brian jones and uh biographies of paul bowles and you know so i did i did interview a lot of people that remembered uh you know these people like uh so there's an american writer called josh schumacher Mm -hmm. um who uh used to teach in the american language school in tangier and he used to read when Paul Bowles was very old and had lost his sight, uh, Josh would go round to Paul Bowles' apartment. So Josh was in his 20s, I think, and Bowles was in his 80s. And he would go round and read stories to this old, old American writer in his apartment. So you, but Josh told me, you know, a nice anecdote about Paul Bowles. So, you know, it's a question of finding people that you know, were young enough at the time to, but obviously, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to interview someone that was only five years old yeah. at the time, but, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's about get, trying to find the right people in the right mm-hmm. place. Like somebody said, oh, there's a guy down the road that, that knows Mick Jagger, you know, and uh, he runs a carpet shop down, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the Medina uh, near the uh, uh, Petit Soco, you know, so mm-hmm. anyway, I, wandered down, you know, and I asked for this guy, you know, and then it was this lovely old man, and I said, do you know Mick Jagger? And he goes, yes. And I go, oh, right. <laughs> great, great. Well, tell me about him. And he's a oh, lovely man, lovely man, you know. Oh, right. What was he like? Oh, really nice, really nice, you know. And I thought, this interview isn't going too well, you yeah. know. And so I, I wanted to, I was hoping this man would say, oh, yeah, you know, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, they all hung out here in 1969 or 68 or whatever, and they came to my carpet shop, and, oh, you wouldn't believe, you know. And I was hoping to have uh-huh. these wonderful anecdotes, but instead I just got a man saying, very nice, very nice yeah. man, you know. And I sort of thought, <laughs> I, listened back, I listened back to my interview and thought, uh, no, this isn't going to work. Well, I'd love to, have, to say to you now, 
oh well there's a you know a receptionist at the, or a, a bellboy in the Minza who you know was five years old and he and Truman Capote you know went to Nepal or something together you know but mm-hmm. I, I'm afraid I just didn't you know I don't yeah. all, I didn't always strike gold yeah but but hopefully there's a there's a mosaic of different memories that come together from the book and we get we get a vivid picture hopefully but you know I couldn't always you have to be honest I didn't always find the people that I wanted to find but mm-hmm. I, but then I you know like Otman Ben Shakroon said you know after a couple of visits to Tangier he suddenly said oh I know Mohammed Marbet I've got his address I know his daughter mm-hmm. let's I'll, I've got his phone number let's go you know and I thought are you kidding me I've just spent like three years trying to find this guy you know? <laughs> and and all these other BBC people saying oh he never gives interviews you know he never he never talks he's very difficult you know I don't know where he lives I don't know if he's alive you know so you suddenly get these amazing breaks in Morocco yeah. you know, just when you've given up just when you've gone out to hell with it it's that sort of place where you know the unexpected happens and you have to be sort of open to that uh-huh. Exactly. No, I completely agree. The one last question I just wanted to ask you um, is in the chapter that you dedicated to Francis Bacon, you state that the movie Casablanca was actually based in Tangier, which actually makes historical sense. And that Rick's Cafe was inspired by Dean's bar in Tangier, which you do reference. Yes, sure. So, I mean, that's uh, extraordinary because when people talk about some of the greatest films of all time, Casablanca is up there, you know, and yeah, and most people think, obviously, that it was inspired and, I mean, uh, most people, well, I don't know actually how many people know this, but most people, movie buffs know that Casablanca was actually filmed in a lot, you know, in Hollywood. Yeah. So, I don't think many people think that, that you know, that, uh, that Rick's Bar or whatever is, is, a, is a real, I mean, there's a... I'm sorry, I'm getting sort of slightly ahead of myself, but there is a Rick's bar in Casablanca itself, which mm-hmm. is run by an American expatriate who has mm-hmm. sort of recreated Rick's bar to look exactly like the film, and they have the film on a continuous loop, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful place, and she's not pretending that that's the original Rick's bar. She knows it's a reconstruction. Um, but you're right. Um, historically, um, people during the Second World War um, people were, uh, especially Jewish Europeans, were obviously trying to escape from Nazi Germany. And so they fled into Switzerland and then they, they, they made their way through Spain and then they got into Morocco. And then uh, from Tangier, they would, if they were lucky, they could get a passport and a boat trip out to, the, to America. And this is basically what happened. So in places like the Minza Hotel and the bar there, during the Second World War, it was a place awash with spies and, you know, there were Spanish uh, occupiers there because Franco's uh, fascists walked in in about 1940. And then there were Germans, towards the end of the war, there were Germans on the run, you know, who feared being... Uh, tried for war crimes, and they were trying to make their way out of Germany for different reasons, trying to make their way to places like Argentina. So uh, Tangier was this place of, uh, you know, sort of transit hub where people were trying to get out and mm-hmm. go somewhere else. And in the times that they spent there, it was full of intrigue and spies and stories. And, and so, again, what I hope that the book does is by talking about some of these places, like another one is this cafe called Madame Ports, and mm-hmm. people would hang out there and have gin and tonics and eye each other suspiciously. And the same with the bar and the Minza, and the same with Dean's bar. And then after the war, it attracted all these celebrities, you know. And so uh, they originally wanted to call the film Tangier, but it didn't have much of a ring about it. And also, about a year or two before, another film came out, a Hollywood film came out, and it was called Algiers. So, you know, it would sound a bit silly to have another film straight away called mm-hmm. Tangiers, because people would sort of scratch their heads and go, didn't we have that film last year? And they'd go, no, that was Algiers. Or well, not another <laughs> Gears, you know, to listen to or watch. So, um, they, and also the, the writers and director of, of Casablanca, and they rightly thought that the word Casablanca has a lovely Mm-hmm. So they decided that that Casablanca should be the title to the film, and you know that the rest is history, and that's 
you know, all the, some of the greatest lines in Hollywood history are attributed to, you know, mm-hmm. he's looking at you, kid, and this is the start of a great relationship. Play it again, Sam. You know, all these wonderful uh, lines, which are, in, in a sense, also misquoted, but that's part of what we go to talk about with Tangier. The truth and the fiction get slightly blurred, you know. Um, so I think it's sort of amazing that Tangier was actually... It's a bit like Brian Geisen, you know, didn't get the credit for the mm-hmm. cut-up technique, and Tangier didn't get the credit for the film Casablanca. And it's only when you start to explore, you know, the movie buffs and you read the Hollywood history that you find out that uh, Casablanca was actually set in Tangier. So Tangier inspired Casablanca, but didn't get the credit. And so it was the yeah. same with Brian Geisen. He inspired William Burroughs to create this cut-up technique, which you know, had such a huge cultural impact, but he didn't get the credit. So in a way, Tangier is a place that has inspired so many people, but it doesn't perhaps get the credit it deserves. And then, so perhaps that's what I was trying to do with this book, is put it on the cultural map again. Well, because think... obviously, Paris, obviously Paris, New York, London, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, uh, Tokyo, whatever, they, they have huge recognition, but Tangier doesn't have that. And I think that's, you know, unfair when you think how much it produced, you know, it it punched above its weight, Mm -hmm. but for some reason didn't get the acknowledgement. And it it got buried in the dust for decades. And it's only just, you know, the jewel is sort of just being repolished now. And I hope my book goes some way towards helping that process. Well, I mean, you've certainly inspired me and this chat as well as inspiring me to figure out when I can make my way to Tangier and just kind of follow in the footsteps. I like in the, throughout the book, you say, okay, I left this place and we turn to the left and there's this here. And like, for me, it's a very interesting place that I want to go back to based on your writing. So for people who are listening and they want to buy the book, where could they get a copy? Um, well, of course, we're you know we're in the age of global, mm-hmm. you know, international. <laughs> so I mean, if you're if you're sitting in London or whatever, you can, you can order it on Amazon, uh, you know. But the uh, the book has only just come out, and mm-hmm. I'm arranging with my publishers and a local distributor in Morocco, and local bookshops in Tangier and bookshops in Marrakesh. Because there are these beautiful, like the, we were talking about the Cinema Reef, you know, yeah. that has been restored. The, the Librairie de Cologne is this beautiful bookshop that has been restored uh, and beyond its former glory because it probably wasn't as beautiful as it is now. And then there's another bookshop in Tangier called Lady and Solite, and they're very interested in stocking it. Mm-hmm. But I hope that, uh, you know, Tangier from the Roman to the Rolling Stones will also, you know, be in in little uh, boutique hotels and that people will go, oh, this is nice. Yeah. I'll, I'll read a chapter. Because I think I think you can read it. I mean, there's lots of ways to read travel books. You can sit in your armchair in London and go on a magic carpet ride mm-hmm. in your imagination. Or the other thing is that you go to Tangier and you take it with you or you read it on your roof terrace mm-hmm. with a cup of mint tea and you look out at the Straits of Gibraltar. And I hope that that's, that's, the, that's sort of... Um, first choice you know that's yeah. the that's the ultimate thing if you can sit gazing out at gibraltar and the straits and or jebel musa or whatever and read about hercules or read about or sit in the cafe Hatha mm-hmm. and read about mohammed marbet then you're getting you're getting the real experience of morocco and then you're also getting a little it's like an audio guide, maybe, yeah. except as a, a book that will, will help unlock its secrets. You know? mm-hmm. So I hope, hope that people will read it and go to Tangier and, as you say, like you have been inspired to mm-hmm. find out more. So thank you so, so, so much for taking the time it's to a chat pleasure. with me. No, it's, a good, it's good practice for me because I'm giving, I will be giving some talks uh, about Tangier, so it's good. Oh, really? uh, you know, this stuff, this stuff sort of comes out of my head and then it's quite good. If you're a fan of getting off the tourist trail and planning to be in Marrakesh, join us for one of our Tasting Marrakesh food and cultural tours. On our Tasting Marrakesh Gilles tour, we explore some of the 20th century architecture in Marrakesh, stop at some of our favorite art galleries housed in Art Deco gems, and wander through parks and religious buildings that surprise visitors who dare to venture beyond the Marrakesh Medina. We chat history, eat street food, and shop. You know, some of my favorite things. But don't just take it from me. 
Condé Nast Traveler recently included this tour on its roundup of 10 cool things to do in Marrakesh. Our website is tasting-marrakesh.com for more details. That's Marrakesh with a C-H. All of our tours are private and bespoke, so we take you only to the places that interest you. But for now, it's time to say see you in two weeks when I'll be back in the studio after a short break on the coast. In the meantime, if you want to discuss a collaboration or partnership, please feel free to get in touch via my website, mandyandmorocco.com. And if you're a fan of Why Morocco, I would be so grateful if you could rate and review this podcast on your favorite channel or spread the love by sharing on your social media networks. Just don't forget to tag me at Mandy in Morocco so I can be sure to thank you for helping me share my love of Morocco.